Hey, it's Dan Harmon from Harmontown. I want to tell you about an exciting new podcast coming to Feral Audio called Launch Left. Rain, Phoenix, and Moon Zappa are going to interview extraordinary minds, mavericks, and pioneers in their fields. This season, Launch Left is going to celebrate nonconformists like Michael Stipe, Shepard Ferry, Spike Jones, Mario Batali, and many others. And those guests are also going to spotlight their favorite left-of-center emerging artists. So listen and subscribe now at feralaudio.com slash left, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do it however you want, man. That's the nonconformist part. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks. Plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Feral Audio. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you like my theme music there, that is by a band called Les Blanks. Go to lesblanks.com, check out more of their music. Uh, they also have a side band called uh, Holy Folk, so check that out as well. It's really pretty goddamn awesome. If you haven't listened to my show before, it is pretty much what the title says. It's a conversation with me, Matt Dwyer, and I usually talk to somebody uh, who is uh, very interesting, has great stories, has lived some life is a creative person or somebody doing something who's, you know, trying to help out the world a little bit. And today is not only an old dear friend, but is also a man who I would say has lived some life, uh, Mr. Mick Betancourt. And uh, it's a man, he's got a great story and it's, and some insight. It's, this is, this is one of those episodes when it, when I finished recording it, I was like, well, that's a great one. And it's all Mick Betancourt because I just, sort of sit there and listen to him uh, tell some fascinating stuff and things and whatnot. <laughs> uh, it's really great. Also, check out his podcast, uh, The Mick Betancourt Show. And, uh, you know, we give his Twitter and all that stuff at the end of the show. So follow him and see and listen and all that stuff. Um, that's it. I was, uh, I've, this is a, I've, I've tried to record this intro a few times. I've been trying to tell a story, sort of, of how I got asked to... Uh, Manage a bar, thinking like, oh, yeah, I'll be responsible finally once in my life and, like, hold a job that actually I have to be accountable for some things so I could pave a future and maybe make a child um, with someone, not my girlfriend, just someone. I'll just randomly drive to Ohio and pick a woman in a bar who's got low self-esteem and dumb enough to sleep with me, and I'll make a baby with her. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. If I make a baby with somebody, it'll be probably with the woman I live with, unless I'm uh, sterile, which, frankly, could be quite possible, just letting you know. I, um, but we'll, we won't go into how I know that. <laughs> I think you can put two to two, two and two together there on that one, and two to two, um, to play some two to two basketball. I, yeah... But I just, you know, it's amazing, like, you know, I'm 45, I spent my life um, pursuing, performing, and writing, and uh, really working hard at not having to have a real 
job in the real world. And, you know, and I don't I don't mean it to sound arrogant or assholish or like, hey, I'm different, but I'm just not cut out for that stuff. <laughs> it's like like once I get thrown in that real world situation, like my head gets just like bunged up. Like it's just like suddenly it's just like an old, dry, crumbled up sponge and I get pent up and I get angry and I get depressed and I just I can't. And if I'm around people too much, I sound like a weirdo, but if I'm around people too much, I get you know, and it's like managing a bar. It's like you just see people. You don't see people at their best when you work in a bar. Rare is the occasion of people being like, hey, we just uh, like won an award and we're having a really good time. It's usually like, hey, I've made a series of mistakes in my life and I'm really trying to forget these mistakes. And uh, so here I am in this bar and I'm going to pound this uh, shitty whiskey until... The memories of my awfulness uh, just sort of missed away into the ether of my brain. <laughs> and uh, so that gets really uh, tiresome. But not that, like, you know, if I, somebody asked me to, like, manage a office, you know, insurance office, uh, I would probably be that guy who drives his Ford pickup truck through the front window and, you know, strips naked there in the uh, office and yells about the apocalypse or something. That's where that would drive me to because I'm just... But so that's what I've learned. I think if you're one of those people who, if you're listening to the show and you're like, I'm a writer or I'm a this or a that, fucking stick to your guns because it's who you are and uh, you can't change that. And I tried to, it's like, it was like, it was like I was one of those gay people, one of those gay people. I don't even know why, <laughs> one of those, but like I was a gay person and I was like, I'm going to be straight. That's what the equivalent of it was. It's like I was, I was trying to go straight. And you can't do it. All the praying in the world won't make you go straight. And all the praying in the world won't make you be, if you're just a weirdo, reclusive guy, won't make you suddenly be able to have a real job and wear penny loafers. That's what my, uh, my, that's what I've learned these last couple of months. And uh, just then real quick, though, about the praying the gay way, I just wonder, if, out of curiosity, if you can pray it to come. Like, just like, hey, I'm going to pray and be gay. I don't know, maybe you can. Let's uh, get on with this uh, great conversation I just uh, recorded the other day with Mr. Mick Betancourt. Please listen to his podcast. Follow him on Twitter. He's a hell of a guy. This is a great episode. I thank Mr. Betancourt. Uh, it's weird when you know somebody, as I do know you for 20 years, but it's like, when you want to say something sincere, it feels like, uh, you feel like an idiot. Or I, cause I was going to say like, you have one of the more fast, like you won't, you have one of the more fascinating lives of anybody I know. Like you have a great story as a human being. And I feel like a total sh schmuck saying that. <laughs> like, it just feels schmaltzy and fake or something. Well, I think our whole relationship started on making things up. <laughs> so True. To like, our whole thing was to look at each other and jump into fantasy. <laughs> so to sit in a real moment. That's uh, Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it, you would think as, as, as a, guy, a guy in his 40s that I'd be able to express myself emotionally. No way. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, you come from... Well, you come from Humble Park, in Humble Park in Chicago? Yeah, I was born at uh, St. Anne's Hospital, and then I lived in Humble Park for a little bit 
Peoria for a year. Peoria, Illinois? Yeah, and then I came back to Humble Park, then Berwyn, Riverside, back to Berwyn, Forest Park, Rogers Park, about eight different apartments in Rogers Park, Old Irving Park, Sayre Park, Jefferson Park, and then L.A., you're about a Chicago. You're like, I mean, you are. You are like, you were what I kind of consider like. That's a real Chicago dude, because you you grew up in the neighborhoods. You have that neighbor. You know, I didn't have that, and I feel cheated. <laughs> I do. Well, I was Burbs for a long time, and then moved. You know, I was City Burbs, then back. But Berwyn was such an eclectic, an, an, an insanely eclectic neighborhood of like Slovak, very Bohemian. You know. Uh, anybody that had WGN Network, there was Son of Svanguli, which was like a Elvira-esque, like a guy in a huge top hat dressed up like a ghoul. The set was he was in a graveyard and he played B, you know, B-grade horror movies. And then the running joke was Berwin, like at least he didn't live in Berwin. Like the guy was dead <laughs> and living in a fucking graveyard. And he was, his saving grace was... You know, imagine watching that as a kid. You're like, what? Like, I always wondered that because I and then I went to Berwyn once and I was like, oh, this is actually really nice. Yeah, it was, you know, little bungalows. It's weird. It was a uh, the Berwyn. It was an odd mix of Eastern European older women and then their kids, um, all of which seemed to have drug and alcohol problems. And so the grandparents, myself included, were raising. We were all raised by our grandparents. A handful of kids had their own parents. And. uh a lot of crime undercurrent because the Berwyn Cicero was one of the five, you know, not five fingers because that's New York, but you know, there was like the Chinatown <laughs> crew. There was a North side crew, West side Berwyn Cicero crew. And so a lot of people's parents were involved in organized crime. It's just what it was. <laughs> so it was just so bizarre. Like one of our, uh, there were, I don't want to say the names, but there was, you know, a handful of us that had known each other since first grade. We're still friends now. One of our friends' dads was basically like a captain, and his thing was he would kill or beat guys with railroad spikes. So they called him Spike. And we just knew that. Like, that was just the thing that we knew. Like, you get a little older and you have some perspective. Like, you're like, that's <laughs> fucking bizarre. Like, it's so weird. But that was just, you know, I speak English because it's what I was taught as a child. So, like, I grew up around all of this stuff, and I knew it. I thought it was normal because that's just what I was around. You know, my dad was 22 when he died. My parents were 16 and 17. Yeah. How old were you when your dad died? Six. I didn't – for some reason, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, my mom didn't really – she didn't want anything to do with me. So, my father got custody of me. And, uh, you know, I've told you this before. You know, I thought I was black until I was seven. I thought I was like Steve Martin, the <laughs> jerk, <laughs> because I'm Irish and Puerto Rican. And we lived in Humble Park, which is a huge Puerto Rican neighborhood. You know, there's a giant Puerto Rican flag going, you know, you got to drive through it. Just like when you go to Boys Town, there's the big gay pride flags, you know, what is that? Like a sculpture, basically, a huge flag that you drive under. And in, in Humble Park, it's the Puerto Rican flag. And we shared a house with a black family with three kids, Tyrone, Dude, and Bebe. And so I didn't, <laughs> I couldn't speak Puerto Rican, so I couldn't hang out with anybody really in the neighborhood. So I hung out with these three black kids too. Tyrone was a little older; he did, he was sixteen, so he didn't really hang with us. But I, that's who I hung out with were these two kids. I talked black. I shook my head side to side when you asked me to do something. I ain't gonna do it. Is that like you had the 
mannerisms, everything. Like I was like Steve Martin in The Jerk. I, when I saw that movie, I was like, oh. <laughs> Mama, what do you mean I'm not black? And then when my dad died, he was, uh, you know, I got to say, man, it was chronic dysfunction, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, that he was gone. He was missing for three days before anyone even thought something might be up. You know, that's just the house we lived in was like first days like he was Big Mickey. I was little Mickey. So it's like anybody seen Big Mickey? No, they figured he was just out on a run, you know. Second day, you call the police station. This is maybe you got caught up in something. And then the third day, you make the calls, you know, you don't want to make, which are the hospital and the morgues. And he was in the morgue. Unidentified male matching his description. <clears throat> and that was it, man. That was it. And so my uh, mom's brother came and got me out of, the, out of Humble Park and brought me over to uh, my mom's side, which was Berwyn. And I lived <laughs> there for... Uh, and she had a very strict beat the black out of me program. <laughs> they did not. As cute and fun as the little white kid that talked black might have been in Humble Park. <laughs> that shit did not fly in Berwyn, which was all like Italian kids. I was a little smattering of Irish, a lot of Eastern European. They were like, what do you talk? What? What's this voice you're using? Was that still in like the era? And I mean, it might not be, but. Whereas, like, blacks don't go to, you like, you don't go to the Italian neighborhood and vice versa. Absolutely, man. I remember being at the Rec, which was on, like, 30th and, I think, East Avenue. And a black kid was riding his bike down the street. And it was, uh, it was right out of a movie, man. Everyone's brain. Now, I had lived with black. It wasn't a big thing to me. You know what I mean? Their brains, it was like they saw Satan riding down the street. They jumped over the uh, fence of the pool and were yelling and throwing shit. And the kid took off. It was like uh, in that movie Bronx tale where they saw that's exactly kids. what I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, and they were throwing the end bomb around and you know, and now if you go to Berwyn, I'd say it's probably 60% Hispanic, mostly Mexican, which is weird. Cause it was Chicago. There wasn't a huge Mexican population when I was, it was Pilsen was the Mexican neighborhood, but it was Puerto Rican, Dominican was, was really where you're, Dominant Hispanic and they don't like, the Mexicans don't like they, they hate you, each other. Yeah. They all think the, the other's giving them a bad name, especially like Cubans and Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. That strip down there is ultra violent against each other. That's a lot where the infighting of the Spanish gangs come in, like the Spanish Cobras, the, the Kings, Imperial Gangs. All that stuff is all weird subset faction of of uh, Hispanic pride. Was your family like gang oriented at all? No. Well, my my aunt was a was a heroin addict, and she w loved dating uh, these low rent gangbangers that come in, and they'd slap the shit out of her in the living room, and then my dad would drag the guy outside. My dad had like this biker thing going to him, so like, and there was no, <laughs> you know, hair down to his ass, like the turquoise sterling silver jewelry. He'd tinker with bikes. He'd, you know, he'd work at these factories or he got a couple gigs as a motorcycle mechanic and uh, work at these auto body places. And so there were these guys that had this kind of thuggish. It wasn't Cholo culture because Cholo's dominant, more Mexican flair and, and presentation of fashion. But uh, it was really like these Puerto Rican, East Coast Puerto Rican tough guys, man. And my father didn't give a shit. He didn't. He wasn't a tough guy he wasn't a mean guy but it just was like there was this line if you crossed with him there was no debate it was he was a real man 
I mean, he was 16 when I was born. He had to drop out of high school. He was the only one in the house that worked. He just went from job to job trying to figure out how to do this with a kid. I don't even know how or why he got custody. I mean, I, I, later when I moved in with my mom, I figured out why. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I can't even imagine now being a parent of two kids, like being 16 and having to drop out. Um, when my son was born, I was about a year sober and uh, I couldn't find work. And uh, I walked up, I had by that time moved out to L.A., and I walked from Sepulveda to uh, Fulton, and I applied at every restaurant on the on both sides of the street. And then I went over north in Van Nuys to all the warehouses because I could operate uh, heavy equipment like forklifts, slip trucks, high lows, all that stuff. And I said, listen, I'm forklift certified. I'll, I'll work whatever, whatever you can give me, I'll take. So my wife was pregnant. And, uh, or no, uh, she already had the baby and formula was like $30 for a little thing of Similac. I just was, I was pushed up against the wall and, uh, I was, it was probably the most pressure I've ever felt because it wasn't just me wandering the earth, trying to figure out how to eat myself or even provide for my wife who I knew was an adult and could go her own way if at the end of the day, if she ever wanted to. But, uh. I thought, well, I, I have to start committing crimes then because I can't, I'll, I'll be goddamned if my son's going to go hungry because I can't figure out how to put this work puzzle together, you know, and I just couldn't get work. I could, I was, I'm not saying I'm going after the dream here. <laughs> I couldn't find sustainable income to buy groceries. What year was that? 2005. So, uh. I just, I mean, when I first, because yeah, I think I moved here 2001, and just finding a job here, and I I was like single and alone, and I I thought about, I remember driving past a liquor store and going, fuck, just maybe you could get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but I couldn't imagine the pressure of, fuck, I got a child, and that's. Well, also, I, I, um, I was around that. I think, you know, I was born around people with criminal tendencies. And then I, I, I broke away from that. And I, I always felt like I needed to be near that in case things didn't work out for me on a legitimate level, that I would know how to swim in those. Like, either way, I was surviving. That's it. That was my... And I thought that's how you have to live your life. I got I to gotta survive, you know. But big shift for me came later on where someone explained to me that um, life is to be lived, not endured. And just that little phrase was a huge shift in my thinking because I had always had, it was me against the world. I grew up poor. I grew up around violence. I grew up getting evicted out of this place, moving in the middle of the night of that place, stealing food. When I was 13, I lived on my own in my own apartment and I had no food. So I had to go down to the corner and with my hand out and beg for money. And um, I, to this day, I can still see how people you know, the, the the old ladies thought, oh, you know, little, and the men were like this, you piece of shit. I can see it right now. And it was, you know, 30 years ago, you know, 27 years ago. That just cut me in half, you know, being on the corner. So I figured I got to hustle this. I remember there was a tasty freeze and I'd say to the guy, I'll clean your parking lot for food. You know, if you give me a burger and a shake. So I go there and I just clean clean up the whole parking lot. The guy would give me a hamburger, fries, and a shake. And then I get there sometimes and it would be clean. 
So I go and I grab a garbage bag on the way there. <laughs> <laughs> and I throw fucking trash all over the thing. And I'd be like, listen, man, your parking lot's filthy. I'll clean it up for you for a thing. And then one day he caught me. And he really, he was doing me a huge favor by, he didn't have to, you know, he had employees, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know any of this. He had employees <laughs> that could go out there, whose job it was to go out there, so he was doing me solid. And again, he really felt like I had fucked him, like I'd betrayed him by hustling him like that. It's crazy, man, crazy. So I started painting this. Uh, I stole a oil, like a watercolor thing, and I would paint on uh, pieces of white paper, and I'd go hustle the old ladies and tell them I was selling my art for a dollar because I couldn't bring myself to panhandle anymore. Fuck, that's crazy. <laughs> it was, you know, and now I do this. I get a kid on the line, and I'm like, what am I doing wrong here? Why do I constantly find myself in this situation? I have dreams like the next guy, you know, I'm passionate, want to do things, feel capable in areas in my life. Yet I got to park this car. You know, my, my wife got this Hyundai when we moved out here, and I got to park it two miles up in the hill because the repo guy's coming, and. Every other month, there's an orange notice on my door, eviction, you're out of here, you know, and I got a kid. I'm like, I can't fucking do this, man. Why can't I live life on life's terms? What, what's wrong with me? Because clearly, if it's, if it's happening this much, it, I got I to gotta have a, a part in this. And until I look at that, nothing's going to change. God damn. <laughs> no, but when you were younger, because you grew up in that environment, and, I mean, you have... I don't think my recorder w could hold the amount of stories you have, and I'm not even kidding. Because you're like one of those guys when you first started telling stories, and I would hear them, and I was like, I don't know if I believe this guy. <laughs> like before I knew you, I was just like, That's, I don't. and then over time, you're like, holy shit, this like I believe this guy. <laughs> it's like. Because it's just like so crazy, but that's what that's what makes. I think it's an odd combination of of of. Tragedy seems a little dramatic at this point, but you know there were some rough breaks at the top of the story. You know when I was a kid, <laughs> and then there was this like my uncle introduced me to uh, when I started writing as a kid, just on my own as something. You know some kids draw and they love drawing. You know I would write and and I really responded to that. And he started. How old were you when you started doing it? Second grade. You know just you know writing, trying to write comics like comic books or just writing even little simple stories, he would give me books, read this book. This is a classic. This is Hemingway. Read Jack London. You know, uh, this is Jack Kerouac on the road when I got a little older. So it was the idea of an artistic lifestyle or that that is a, it, it was a, it was a like two storm fronts meeting of poverty and, and, um, and uh, I guess being, overcoming being a recluse by being uh, going way over the top to make up for how scared I was of the world to, to, to run at it like a fucking mad bull, you know, <laughs> with the idea underneath that it was um, artistic and that I was being artistic. And that's what an artist does. He's wild, man. You know, like those beat poets, Ginsburg minus the kid fucking. And, uh, <laughs> You know, it's so funny when you start peeling the layer on those guys like Burroughs was a great writer, but he shot his wife in the face, you know, but you you put all that shit aside. You have a <laughs> it's so funny. You get older and you're like, all right, the guy was gay that and, and it was when it was completely not accepted and, and a very, uh, you know, this was pre Stonewall riots in New York, like really intense, underground, horribly persecuted community. Guys locked into a marriage with a, probably a dear friend who really got him and tolerated the heroin abuse and everything. And he's like, I'll tell you what, 
we're both high on heroin here and we're in Mexico. <laughs> this is going to sound totally crazy, but I'm going to need you to put this apple on your head and go stand on the other side of the room. You, I need you to close your eyes and it's going to sound like I'm cocking a gun. <laughs> like It's like all of it's so insane. And like Ginsburg wrote Howell, great collection of poetry, great finger on the pulse of that movement. But, you know, he's, he's, he's like all that money went to Nambla at the end yeah. of the day. So it's just but you, you none of that perspective comes until you get older. You, you, you that that fire looks comforting to jump in. So I had this angst of a kid with a chip on his shoulder who was raised like, fuck rich people. They're all out to get you. And then this other thing over here of like artist suffering you know, become a mad poet warrior, do that. And so I was always caught in these worlds of like being a wrestler and a skateboarder, but writing, seriously wanting to write poetry better than Dylan Thomas, like reading it over and over and over and over again, every night crying, man, that I could, what if I could never write like this? Like, what if it's already done? It's already been done. You're never, ever, 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 ever going to be this good. Like, and some people can be inspired to watch Jordan play, and they'll be like, "Ah, fuck that guy. Air Jordan, fuck you. I'm going to work hard. But to me, for whatever reason, I have this thing inside of me that gets so intimidated by that, that I go, that it just, it, it crushes me. It suffocates me like, this is so goddamn beautiful and perfect, man. Why even try? Why even go there, you know? Every writer I've talked to says almost the same, where they're like, Fuck, if I can only write like so-and-so. And then you talk to so-and-so and they go, if I could only, like Bukowski was like, if I could only write like Dostoevsky. It's like, it's just a vicious circle. But it's that's horrible, man. what I think also, I think, feeds feeds it. Because you're like, you yeah. want to strive for something opposed to like, I got it. <laughs> I also think you're the story of that, you're, you're, you're the star of that pity party. You're at that table with, you know, where you're the star of that show. And that's also part of that vicious cycle. We're like, now... I'm a little ashamed at some of the stuff that I've written just because it was easy and I let it be easy and I didn't, I didn't push myself and I'm disappointed, but I, shame's a very toxic thing for me to, to get involved with. It's a horrible fucking bed partner. So I, I have to be very careful. I have to learn from it and not allow myself to go into that shame spiral, you know? Yeah. But the, we were talking before we hit record. It's like, <clears throat> man, I really want to push myself this year. And, and 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 exceed my own expectations as far as writing goes particularly there's some other things that I want to go after but really go in this memoir that we were talking about we're both writing and and go if this is it's not just my name on this man it's about me so i have to be delicate to not have it be some emotional jerk off but also be the best writing that I can do and be okay with it. You know what I mean? Go after it. Make this the best. Not make it cute or jokey. I want it to be real and I want it to be a good read. But I think without being precious and, or pretentious about it, you know, if you're writing your memoir, it's like we were saying with stand-up, like it's got to be yours. It has to be your story and to write your story and to challenge yourself to write it the best that you can. That's an amazing uh Undertaking. What? Because that's. It, there was two things I wanted to ask. First of all, like, as because I think working class, coming from working class, and like like myself as well, was like there was always a little bit of a conflict with like I was like I want to be a writer, and then uh, there would be that 
oh, who do you think you are? <laughs> like, did you have that struggle as well? Yeah, man. I remember when I was good. And, and again, I, I don't think moving to L.A. to be a writer. I, I, I think of when Scott Fitzgerald, who had already written The Great Gatsby, I think, moved out here. And people were like, you're not a writer. <laughs> like, it's like, you know what I mean? So, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's such an odd, judgmental place. Uh, so, you know, I moved out here to be to really pursue a career in comedy. Um, I thought I was going to be like a Jackie Gleason type guy that would be click first for comedy, segue into drama, and then ultimately, hopefully, use that as a vehicle to write. And it kind of did happen that way without really any notoriety for the comedy stuff. It just like the door opened because of the comedy stuff. And then another door immediately opened for writing dramatic stuff. But I, I would call it a very specific type of writing for television, which is what I've done mostly for the last, I don't know, eight years. Um, you, you get a time frame to do the best work that you can in a structure that's very rigid on purpose, you know, so you write to that structure. So I don't know really if I've written stuff yet that's just fiction that I want to do. The only reason I went down that road for a second to answer your question is when I was leaving my job, most I was a, I was a truck driver uh, for the city of Chicago. Most people were tremendously supportive and excited. They were like, yeah, you're going to go out and do this, man. You're going to go to that land of fruit and nuts and, you know, the whole <laughs> Chicago thing. And one guy came in, and I had gone to this guy's, this kid's hockey games. I had fucking, I thought me and this guy were squared up. Nothing, no beefs between me and this guy. And as I'm saying goodbye to the foreman that had been very kind to me for the time that I had been working there, he's pacing in the room like a fucking tiger in a cage and amped up, his face is red. And then finally he's like, you know what? You're going to fucking go out there. They're going to kick your fucking ass. And you're going to come back here with your fucking tail between your legs. And you're going to get shit here. I'm going to fuck you on details. You're going to be a fucking failure. You want to leave this great job? You got a pension. You got fucking benefits. You're going to throw it in everyone's face. And you're going to go out there. They're going to fucking crush you, kid. And then he just stormed out of the fucking office. I wonder what that guy's dream was. <laughs> well, the best thing is the, the, I, the, I worked with world champion improvisers. They just didn't know it, that they were these ball busters at a level that, you know, you and I went and trained for, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So uh, without missing a beat, Jimmy, my foreman, goes, don't worry about him. He's got his period. <laughs> like, like, the guy was seriously almost homicidal, like red through clenched teeth. And he was like, those guys would never let anything bother them. They were just like, this is my life. I'm totally content. It was a weird form of Chicago blue-collar Zen Buddhism. Like, <laughs> they were just totally happy, man. And I, I played them for suckers. I'm like, these guys are waiting to die. Look at them, man. Seven to three, Tuesday through Saturday, just fucking grinding it out in this life that never changes. Fucking suckers. It was a young punk kid. And I'm like, wow, those guys actually had happiness for them. It doesn't have to mean that that's my story. But fucking those guys did it. They showed up there. It wasn't over for them. They didn't, you know, walk around with their head hanging low, full of sorrow all day because their dreams. They found it. 
enough money to start a family, which was the most important thing to those guys, to be able to send their kids to Catholic school, to get a two-flat and rent the first floor out until they could get enough equity to get the house. Then they got the house. Then they had enough equity in that, and they got a little cottage in Wisconsin or Indiana, and that was it. And they fucking loved it, man. And I, and I, and I took their happiness for granted. It's like, fuck you guys. Losers <laughs> waking up in my own vomit from hardcore fucking alcoholism. Winner over here, guys, in case you want to see what life should be like. <laughs> what now? When did you go from like writing? You wanted to be like Dylan Thomas. When did comedy sort of become a thing that grabbed your interest? I would, you know, we're the same guy, man. Like it was all AD, undiagnosed ADHD. Like I would be in class in grade school and I'd be like, I should probably throw this desk. <laughs> I just fucking throw the desk and I'm like, I'm going to do wind sprints down the hall. Just run. Gotta run. And I just fucking leave. And the nun would be like, what is happening? And so once I realized... I remember when I made my second communion, I was over at my grandma's house and it rained that day and I was in the, she said, go get something out of the garage. So I went in the alley and the two kids next to me knew it was my first communion. So like, give us the money. And so they were trying to take my communion money, you know, and I'm like, no, no, I can't. And I'm, and I'm trying to talk my way out of it. And the one kid slapped me, my ears started ringing and he's like, and you're not going to tell your fucking grandma we took the money. And there was a puddle where the, where the, the little decline from the garage met the alley and there was like a puddle there. And I had like, a, like a satin shirt on or some shit like this. Was, <laughs> fuck, when would this be? 82 maybe or 83 big wide collar. I laid down in the puddle. I just fucking laid down. I started flopping around like a fish and both those guys started laughing and I'm like, Consciously, I was like, wow, this is something here. Like, this is a thing. And I had used comedy in my house because they were all raging alcoholic lunatics. Comedy diffused everything. It diffused the situation, the anger and the impending violence. And so I used that tool right in that laying in, laying in the fucking puddle in the alley. And then it got to the point where my teacher would give me like five minutes at the end of class because I was so disruptive, man. I was just so out of my mind because you know my mom would take me out drinking with her so i'd be out the night before drinking till two three sometimes four oh, in the morning like in, in when you were like 12 9 10 yes yeah. so i'd be driving home from north avenue and like grand to uh to berwin i'd be dancing you know there'd be smoke machines in the mirror like debbie deb lookout weekend i remember playing all the time with drinking manhattans whoa and uh yeah it was gnarly man it was it was totally insane so I would comedy was a release and it I, I felt something from it. It was like a little high, you know? And um I just did it because I liked the way that it made me feel. Obviously in grade school and high school I did a couple plays and then I went to college for a year and I did like an open mic thing there and just crumbled from the pressure and like I was gonna prepare a set and then I'm like, Fine, I'll just wing it <laughs> And then it went up and I said like two things that I thought were funny that got a laugh and then there was like it was a five minute spot and I and there was like four minutes and fifty five seconds left <laughs> after I said the two funny things. <laughs> it's amazing because I, I think I still do that a lot where I'm like, ah just fuck around, something will happen. And then you're and then you're like, oh fuck. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like this is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> the requires and demands preparation. Yeah, there's never. 
Anytime I've walked on stage where I'm like, I got this. This is gonna be, okay. This is easy. And then it, that's the biggest. I'll bookend it, which I think you do too. Like I'll come on and like if I'm doing thirty or forty-five, I'll come on and I'll do five that I know can ease me in and establish me with the audience and go, okay, this guy's under- is capable and understands what the fuck's happening. Then I'll abandon ship and play around in the middle. And then close with something that I know works. Unless I find something which is great in the moment, which all comes from improv, that like I can I can get off on and now have enough skill and craft to go, I don't need to match that moment I just found with something that is tried and true. That thing was just as valid and good. I don't have to then come out of the magic of being in the moment with the audience to then go and rehash this thing. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Do you... Are you? Do you think you're one of those guys who's just like, no matter what, you're going to do stand-up until you're like a fucking old yeah. man? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, because, and I know we're fucking flying around into different eras here, but when I realized, when I got out of the gimme line and I started standing in the thank you lines when my life changed, and I think like if stand-up's about me and what I want, I'm fucked. It's a it's a different you know and you have people like come out now young writers young actors improvisers comics and they're like <clears throat> they want to be famous or they want a show or whatever that's something entirely different at least this is my and, and I I could be totally wrong this is just my own perspective based on my experience like if you want to be a writer and you go out and you get a notebook and you write a story you're a writer. The more you write, the better you will get. Now, if you want to be a successful writer, then you have to quantify that term to yourself. If you want to make money on it, that's a business puzzle you got to solve. It's totally separate than being a writer. It's If you're an actor and you just want to act and you do a play and that's not good enough for you, then you don't want to be an actor. You want something else. You want an act. You an act. It's a springboard to something else. You want money is really what you want, and you want to use acting to get the money, or you want fame and you want to use acting to get to the fame. Now you can want to be an actor and be famous. And I'm not trying to play semantics, but I think if we're talking about how to be truly content and happy in your life, then if you have to understand those things and you have to be honest with yourself about those things. So if you want to be a writer. You go out and you write and you become a better writer. If you want money, then then you have to be like you were talking about the proposal and the th- that's a that's a business proposition. And then you play that game, and a lot of heartache comes when people go, "I'm not going to fucking play that game." Well, if all you're talking about is the game, then clearly you want to be in the game. You know, if the game is breaking your fucking heart because you refuse to play the game, you got to either let the game go, <laughs> or you got to fucking suit up and get on the field, man. And play the fucking game. There's no in-between. Or you are in the in-between. I've been in the in-between, man. I was in the in-between with when I was walking up and down the street trying to find money for my son. Delusional. Why can't I rest fucking victory out of life? I couldn't do it, man. I had to just surrender to the idea of what success is, what money is, how I get it. And then that's when things started to become a little more clear about how I could just operate and exist, how I could breathe without a foot on my chest 20 minutes before my eyes opened and an hour after I went to sleep. It was fucking torture, man. It's torture for too long. Wouldn't that shift occurred? Like, because I, I don't know, with me it was like an age thing where I was just like, oh, you've been 
like I've approached everything from being needy, like fucking, like I would be writing something. And I was like, oh, this is the fucking one, and yeah. like it was desperate. <laughs> it was like, and it was like validate this will val. And then I've realized, like, if you don't let that go, it's every project, everything you try to do creatively is gonna be that. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think probably that hindered me from being cont- happy and successful. Well, the happiness is then dependent on something outside of you. And I think that's a huge, <clears throat> and again, <clears throat> excuse me, just my two cents. You know what I mean? Like uh, everything, uh, particularly in very image conscious and very, uh, uh, a wealthy city, you know, like uh, LA where even New York, it's like you walk around New York and you look at an apartment and like, how much is that? Three million dollars. You're like, that's a toilet and a fridge. <laughs> you know, like, how do you, how does this, how is this sustainable? You know, and I start, I, I don't even know if your mind or like, I'm like, man, it's 20 years from now, it's fucking planet. We're not even be able to live on this thing. My kids are fucking doomed and China's going to collapse and Russia's attacking the fucking Ukraine. And, you know, <laughs> I'm up five minutes and, and it's a, a hopeless, unmanageable situation where I'm doomed and my children are doomed and my wife's doomed and we're doomed and it's hopeless. And like, oh, I, I don't even know where the fuck that comes from. Well, I think and, part of it, too, is our environment. That, like, I grew up in an environment where it was like everything was doom. Yes. So that it's stuck in our psyche somewhere. A little manic depressive. I don't know how your spot was, but, like, you know, one, uh, one day it's the world. It, it, everything's possible. It's all going to change. Isn't it amazing? Pack up because the sheriffs are coming for our shit tomorrow morning. Like, s- just these huge swings. And I think that informs a lot of it, too. Like, it's either going to be like it's like you just said, this is going to be the thing and I'm going to sell this and it's going to be amazing and I'm going to be a millionaire and it's going to be great. (laughs) The sun's going to explode in 20 years and we're all going to die in a ball of horrific fire. Yeah, I just I had a film script a few years ago that was like heat out the ass and I was like, this is fucking it. And I was like imagining, I was like, oh, I know which girls I'm going to be going. <laughs> like, like everything. And I was like, it don't like a, this, it was the same thing where I don't. I was like, none of this is ever going to make you happy. Yeah. You are just on a cycle of misery. I'll tell you this, man. From that spot of 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 surrendering of really. The second darkest period in my life where I was like, <clears throat> if I check myself out now. And I've talked about this before. Like, if I check myself out now, my wife is is uh, young enough where she'll easily be able to find a guy that got the rule book. And my son should have no memories of me. Like, if there was ever a time... And I can't just leave because I don't want to be that guy. You know what I mean? Like, I got to go. I got to pull my own card. It's over with. And then I thought, well, I didn't come through all of this shit that I came through to fucking get to this point to be 20... How was it? 28... And do that. Plus, I just had a friend of mine do that, and it just destroyed me. Two, four people I knew in the last five years prior to that had taken their own life. So, I mean, I'm dark. I'm not. I'm not being dramatic. This is. I'm right there, man. You know. And I had to let go of a lot of old ideas. Now, the flip side of that is a lot of my dreams, as far as being comfortable, have come true. Like, I want for nothing right now. Like, I got clean clothes on. Um, I live in a home, which I never thought I would, you know. I ne- This is the first home I've ever lived in. I've always lived in apartments, you know. 
uh, most of the people in my life are healthy, and I got money in the bank. Never had that in my entire life, except for the last six years. You know what I mean? It all means something different than it would have the day before I was at that darkest point. That doesn't validate me. That doesn't. Uh, it just brings me an immense amount of comfort because I don't have to worry about stealing food or where, where and when I'm going to eat. Are my children going to eat? That worry is the, 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 that worry being removed is priceless. But the things that I demanded happiness from happened. And they bring me comfort rather than happiness because I had to let go of the idea of, like you were just saying, like what that is. I get this and I'm happy. Well, it's that's not sustainable, nor is it real, but it's the tricks that your consciousness and your ego play on. Like you go out and get that thing over there instead of being able to be happy no matter what's going on. Not happy, content. Just being, a, being, being we're getting fucking douchey philosophical now, but... <laughs> How to live life on life's terms. You know what I mean? I never could do that because I always, when I got uncomfortable or I started to feel sad, I didn't like it and I wanted to fucking cut. I wanted to get out. Of, I wanted to get out of how I was feeling. You know what I mean? So I have to do drugs and alcohol, whatever the fuck it was. And it never occurred to me to just roll with the punches. It never occurred to me with just being okay. With, shit's fucked up. Shit's fucked up and being okay with that or using it to be inspired to, to double time it and get the fuck out of there, you know, to try to find something. But literally being like this wayward vessel just getting thrown around by these fucking emotions and these swings and life kicking the fuck out of me instead of just planting my feet going, this is what it is. I'm broke right now. Yeah, that's it. It's not rocket scientists. I have no fucking money in the bank. That's it. Money will come. Money will go. I couldn't get my head around just even that simple thing. You know what I mean? It became this huge thing that blocked out the sun and everything else. I couldn't see around it. How'd you make the transition into writing dr- TV drama? Because that's, I've, and actually, that's a question I've wanted to ask you. Were we just talking about writing and I went on a 20 minute <laughs> monologue about my emotional well being? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's all. You're like, how do you make pumpkin pie? Listen, the core <laughs> of fear, Matt, really to its essence, is graded by the juvenile psyche. <laughs> but I think, like, I know you, because you cut yourself off and you were like, oh, just philosophical douchebaggery. And I was like, but it's like, I feel like there was something disconnected within me. So, like, that, like I didn't know how to communicate. Like, I could write and I could do things, but I was, everything was from the wrong space. And it's like, I don't think a lot of people see that. They're just like, fucking just shove it down everybody's throat and it will happen. It's like, that's why everyone, I, most of the people I know who are very successful are fucking miserable. Because they... Yeah, I know. I mean, a lot of... My yeah, f- for sure. And I think that, like, I think there's that saying, to thine own self be true. And I think a lot of people... Not a lot of people. There's some people that get the asshole pass. You see them, and they're fucking lunatics. And they walk <laughs> out of the room, and they're like, ah, that's just Tom. And you're like, fuck Tom. Like, why does Tom get to act that way? That's just who Tom is. And for whatever reason, (laughs) (laughs) fucking Tom gets the asshole pass. You know, and then there's other people that come in. Like, I can't, I cannot yell. I can't lose my temper. And I know this sounds totally insane. But because of where I've come from, what I think is just totally acceptable yelling temper thing really terrifies other people if I do it. And I had no idea because they're like, 
like I, I got into an argument one time and uh, the guy called me back. He goes, listen, um, you just can't do that anymore because a lot of the people in the room were scared. And I go, what the fuck are you talking about? And he goes, well, you really went to a very <laughs> crazy. And I'm like, listen, man, you want to see fucking crazy. I'll show you crazy. I go, I raised my voice a little bit. Uh, and I was very aware, mind you, to keep it where it was at. He goes, really, no one here cares where you thought your voice was. There are people here legitimately scared and intimidated. And I'm thinking, ooh, is that a good thing? You know, my head. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's a horrible thing. And I said, you know what, man? Thanks for telling me that because I don't know how I sound. And I go, I, I really apologize to you guys. And, I, you know, it was when I was learning how to do business. I knew how to write, or at least I was a... a a novice writer. At least I understood putting words on paper. I understood that part, but I didn't understand collaboration. I didn't understand a, the, how business works, and I didn't understand that I don't have the asshole pass that Tom does. And so I had to understand what works for me and what doesn't. So I thanked that guy. I'm like, listen, man, thank you, because I see a lot of other people, they pipe off and they get away with it. I go, clearly, I'm not one of those guys. I'm also not greasy, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. I can't be that guy. For whatever reason, I look desperate. I have to be the guy where I do the best work that I can and I put it out there and I follow up and then that's it. And if that's not supposed to happen, I let it go. Otherwise, all those other things we were talking about start to come back. The desperation, the worry, the panic, the anxiety, the conspiratorial thoughts like this fucking universe is conspiring to fucking kill that. I just I'm like, here it is. I work very hard on this. I hope you like it. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. I follow up. Good. Did you like things? Good. You get to it. Did you read it? Yeah. All right. Thanks. Done. On to the immediately on to the next thing. Because if I don't go on to the next thing, which also keeps a good workflow going as far as writing, of just going and keeping writing instead of making my idea of who I am a writer, who I am as a writer, revolve on how the last thing I wrote was accepted, instead of me competing with myself, I'll go fucking nuts. You know, I'll just be like, well, the last people didn't like that, so that means shit is over. <laughs> like, <laughs> as a writer, because. Is there anything that like you? There's something out there that like I want to write that, and it's but it's like like to me it's like man, what to write a fucking novel, which scares the shit out of me. Yeah, I'll tell you, man. And I was thinking about this right before we started rolling. There's a couple things. Like again, I I wouldn't I would uh, I I would love to win an Academy Award for a dramatic script, you know. But that's almost seems like putting the cart before I want the award for doing the thing I'll do to get the award. I understand how that sounds, but I would like to write a dramatic script on that level. I guess to be in that mix of a beautiful story, character driven thing. I'd also like to write a Caddyshack, <laughs> you know, cause that is fucking hilarious. Timeless comedy. I like both man. And I feel like, the business side of that, when we're talking about what the business side of that puzzle is, people don't understand because they have very specific jobs that are in corporate structures of like, we sell you as drama guy. When I went out to get hired as a dramatic writer, my agent who's changed my life, she's amazing, the confidence that she had in a fat fucking former truck driver who, you know, flopped around the stage like a drunk Farley. <laughs> Who said, I'm going to write drama. <laughs> she believed me and said it's going to be very difficult because people don't know you as a drama writer. They only know you as a comedian, you know, because I had just done the Montreal Comedy Festival. And then I got hired as a dramatic writer. And then the very next year and not 
this isn't anything about her, but she was a mirror to a mirror to me of what she was dealing with as far as the business side of that puzzle goes. I said, well, now this year I have a half hour that, I, that I'm really excited about. Com- television comedy I really like to go out with and try to sell. She said, no, people only know you as a drama writer. And I said, but last year <laughs> you said no one's going to see me as a drama writer. Like, isn't this challenge exciting? Like, we'll defy expectations again. But that's not the, the that's the hurdle to get over. Do you know what I mean? So I'm aware that that's the business puzzle to solve. So when you answer when you to answer your questions like, I want to do it all, not so that I can say that I did it all, but so that I can feel it that I did it all. That I that I love I love writing drama. I do, and I love writing comedy, even though I haven't felt any success in the writing side of comedy, but I feel it, you know, when you and I do shows, we're doing stand-up, and I get a laugh there, that's what I get from that. Anything else than that's the business thing. And also, man, and I've been hiding from this for 30 years, man, and I haven't told anybody about this, but it's poetry. Hiding out like a scared fucking kid in the closet while there's a thunderstorm going on outside. Because to me, if that's it, that's writing. Dylan Thomas, Shakespeare, Keats. Are you fucking kidding me? Everything else is bullshit. If we really want to be honest, if we really want to be fucking honest, things that take grown men and women at the top of their fucking careers 400 pages to do, Thomas did it in a stanza. (sighs) Fuck you. <laughs> you know, he did it. He did it. Lee Young Lee, The City in Which I Love You. That book of poetry, Gregory Corso, Long Live Man. Unbelievable. And and to sit down and to reduce it to its core with no bullshit. To me, I've been hiding out from that for 30 years. Do you write it though? I mean, or you just hide it and you're afraid? No, I I mean it's it's so I used to write poetry it's and it's so intimidating to me, man, and and it's so fucking intimidating and there's no other way to put it. Like I've written two poems probably in the last 15 years. And one I was like, all right, I I kind of like this. 15 years. I kind of like this. <laughs> It's so fucked up. It's interesting because every almost every writer I talk to as well is always they're always like read a lot of poetry. Just if you want to be a better writer, God read damn, it's just read lots of poetry. Yeah, I mean Dylan Thomas to me is the is just the end all be all. I just read it and it just moves me, man. And and it, even his story is so amazing and 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 raw and and filled with so much pain and it's just. Fuck, it's did you ever read that play? I think it's called Dylan. Uh where he know where the doctor's like, listen, man, mom, you know, and it has nothing really to do with him, but it's that that mystery around everything. You know what I mean? Where now mm-hmm. the myth has become more real than the the fucking man, but as a sober drunk now watching this great him talking to himself about art and writing and the world the doctor's like, one more drink and you're gonna, you're, you're done. And he's going to New York to be the toast of the town. All of the people at the Paris Review and the New Yorker, all the people that can finally let him know that he's a good writer, <laughs> are there. 
he's going to be the bell of the ball and he's building a fucking pyramid of shot glasses filled with booze and he's nothing else matters and he just takes the one drink that he knows is going to kill him lights out oh <laughs> It's fucking incredible. It's what I this is the one thing I kept thinking of too. The whole conversation is what you said before. I think it was before we were recording about about like how you want to live. Like I want to live life. And uh, what, what what did you say? Because I'm trying to quote you, and I'm fucking getting something to, about Chuck E. Cheese and showbiz <laughs> pizza. But I was like, people misinterpret what li- people are like. I'm going to live life, and they're like, so I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm going to fuck, yeah, and yeah. I'm going to drink, and it's like that. That's not like. That's the, a misconception, I think, of what's, yeah. of when you were saying, because like I want to be, you know, I want to be a better husband, I want to be a better father, I want to be a better friend. Yeah, I was like that really, like when you're saying that, I was like that's living. There's this guy uh, who's a TV writer and he's kind of a mentor of mine, and he's also a, a good pal. His name's Nick Santora, and he, uh, I went up to Big Sur for three days by myself. <laughs> I told my wife I must go in, into woods and. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to tell my girlfriend that it's a it's a little hard for them. They're like, I'm going to go to a cabin. I'm going to go do, and they're like, That's what I did. They think well, here's the best part. So there's, it's called uh, Dijin. It's like a hundred bucks for a cabin in the woods. It'd be huge redwoods, stovepipe thing. You know, no phone, no internet, no TV. I had this book that I wanted to bring up with me that's like kind of a workshop book where you answer some, you know, just some shit. It's going to be great. So I'm driving up there. It's like a six-hour drive. Three hours in, I go, you know that lady I called to make the reservation seem like she was high on peyote? So <laughs> I called my wife. I said, can you look up the name of this place and just make sure that my reservation is legit? Because I'm halfway up there, and I don't want to get up there and have to sleep in the car which is a little too salt of the earth for me. <laughs> so she calls and I'm like, the lady says you're checking in tomorrow. And I go, that fucking idiot. You know, like, unbelievable. I knew it. I knew it. So she's like, yeah, they can't do anything for you tonight. But uh, so I'm like, well, what else is up there? And she's like, oh, there's Post Ranch Inn and Ventana, which are all like five-star fucking luxury resorts, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, well, whatever the cheapest of the two is, see if you can, if there's rooms there. So we'll go in. I got a jacuzzi overlooking the ocean and, you know, because I can't get into the other spot. And now my wife's like, what happened here? Like, <laughs> I went on to be in a cabin in the woods. And you, uh, you know, I wound up going to this totally where all the Silicon Valley guys have, like, their weddings and shit. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> so the only reason I tell you, so I went up there really to, like, you know, get my head around the idea, broaden my my uh, idea about meditation and calming myself and going into this next chapter of my life as I turn 40 on April 14th and I didn't find anything man I didn't I, I got calmer but I didn't find what I was looking for so I'm driving back home and I call Nick as I'm going through Westlake Village and I say hey man I'm blowing through your town right now and he goes come on let's go eat breakfast Awesome. So I go meet him and over chili omelets, I tell him, I just spent three days up there. And and uh, he he always had this great saying where he'd say, I'm out hunting the money buffalo <laughs> would be his thing. And and so I said, yeah, you know, I'm hunting. The money. And he goes, I was wrong about that. He goes, you've hunt, you've 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 you caught the money buffalo. Now you got to hunt the challenge buffalo. And that's all I was looking for. That's all I was looking for when I went up to Big Sur. 
because I needed someone because I got no one to call, man, which bothers me sometimes. I got no parents to call. I got no one to go, hey, what did you do when you were 39 <laughs> and tell you shot dope? Never mind. <laughs> Disregard. Never called. You know, so I long for those those nuggets that I get from people who have the experience on the right side of things instead of go, listen, man, do what I say, not what I did, which I, I got a lot of those guys and women in my life too. And I get a lot from them, but this time I needed man, as I was on going into 40 with a 10 year old and a five year old at that time, what do I do? And he he just spit it out and it was exactly what, and I didn't find it in the woods. I found it at a diner with another guy who said, you got to hunt the challenge Buffalo man. And so now that's what I'm committed to, which is why I said that to you. Like, how do I become a better husband? How do I become a better father? And this sounds all very angelic and honorable. That's not what I mean. I mean, how do I do that amidst chronic failure and fuck ups, you know, and not go, not using those to go, it's ruined. So why even fuck it? (laughs) Fuck it. To just go, hey, you know what? I yelled there. Fucking sorry about that. Looking forward to another opportunity to riding the ship. You know what I mean? Hey, was really selfish there. Went over and hung out. My friend should have been with you. Looking forward to riding this, you know. Just real responsible shit that's not my default mode, you know. And caring about it in a way, like I said, getting out of the gimme line. How much can I take, eat, make, fuck, fight? Ugh. And just go, I'm grateful for what I have. How do I challenge myself not to get more shiny shit? (laughs) Just get more out of life, out of the experience of living, as opposed to that external bullshit like we were talking about at the beginning of this. Like, fucking that guy over there has got that, and this is happening. Fuck that. Challenge Buffalo, man. And I got to thank Nick for that, because I could not go find that on my own, you know? That is... The perfect way to end this. <laughs> I'm just good. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Very, let's uh, plug your you. You have a great podcast, the McBenton Court Show. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, the one I listened to with Sydney Campaner, like you, like I was like, I want to do a show like Studs Turkle, and I heard your show, and I was like, oh, you're not doing it. McBenton Court <laughs> is doing it. Well, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, it's the McBenton Court Show is a podcast. You can get it on iTunes or Stitcher. Or you can follow me on Twitter, which is at Mick Betancourt, M-I-C-K-B-E-T-A-N-C-O-U-R-T. That's on Twitter. All right, buddy. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. Great. Thank you very much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, do me two quick favors if you can. Write a review on iTunes. Give me five stars. Say hallelujah. If you if if you can donate some money, go to my Feral Audio page and click on the uh, the link there and uh, donate some money. If you can't, I know it's tough times. You probably have like a life, uh, but if you buying, if you're shopping on Amazon, you can go through my Amazon link there. You can buy some stuff. We get a kickback, and it helps us out here at Feral Audio to keep the lights on and keep recording and all that stuff. I, I thank you very much. Follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer. And listen to Mr. Bentoncourt's show. Have a good day. Live life like it's your life. And nobody else is. Thank you.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.